Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. My guest on Writers' Festival Radio today is Rich Larson. Rich is a truly global soul. He's the author of the novels Emir and Annex, as well as over 150 short stories, some of the best of which can be found in the collection Tomorrow Factory. His fiction has appeared in over a dozen languages, and the first screen adaptation, Ice, won the 2021 Emmy Award for Outstanding Short Form Animated Program. We spoke about his newly published second novel, Emir, which Derek Kunskin describes as phenomenal, visceral, high-octane sci-fi, altered carbon unsleeves in a dystopian Beowulf. We'll start with the opening lines of the novel, followed by our conversation. Yorick wakes up dead, which is never comfortable. His chest is a clamp, lungs frozen, no heartbeat. His limbs are phantom. The hindbrain panic swallows him whole. He knows nothing except that he is alone and terrified and in the dark. Every sensory starved nerve in his body is screaming at it. And then a jolt of electricity digs its teeth in and his heart stutters back into motion. He owns his chest muscles again, so he sucks down a breath, ballooning all the crumpled alveoli in his lungs. The first one always feels like sucking back broken glass. A rehearsed thought comes to him. Nothing is wrong. You're coming out of torpor. Nothing is wrong. You're coming out of torpor. He gasps, bucks, waits for the firestorm in his nervous system to subside, for the world to stop lurching from side to side. He works on proprioception, finding his body in space. His arms and legs are spread eagled punctured in a dozen places by tubes that are pumping him full of newly brewed blood. A diagnostic droid is scuttling up and down his torso. His prosthetic mandible is missing. Cold, dry air rasps in his wound. Welcome back from the River Styx, Yorick. Thank you so much for, for being with us this afternoon and congratulations. Uh, Ymir is, is out now and, uh, it's your a brilliant second novel. I think it, it, it's the kind of book that, that really, from the opening, brilliant opening line, uh, just grabbed me and, and pulled me along. And I guess always with something like this, uh, a science fiction uh, kind of propulsive page turner um, kind of thing, my, my the first, the, the place I want to start with you, I guess, is kind of a, a spin on that old, not so much where do ideas come from, but when do you know you have the right kind of mix of ideas or, or, or a structure that is going to become a novel? Like, what do you need to know before you know, hey, this is going to be a novel? Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for having me. Um, I would say it's when you achieve a kind of critical mass that is just too much to fit into a short story. So, with my first novel, Annex, it was originally a short story. And when I tried to sell it, editors were saying, you're just trying to do way too much in this small space. And that was kind of how I knew that I needed to exp 
expand. And so when ideas began accreting for Emir, and I saw it hitting kind of a similar critical mass, that was when I realized it needed to expand into a novel. And I think also with novels, you have to have a character and a setting that you really enjoy because you're going to be stuck with them. Yeah. So tell me with, with Emer, where, where does it begin with you? Does it begin like you have that brilliant opening line about waking up dead that I think just immediately, uh, uh, it's a shock to the system. And I think what, what a great, uh, uh, way to draw you in but does it begin with the character does it begin with the world with the notion of the grendel the the, the family dynamic uh, is it an image is it what is it that that sort of that is your opening into this world i think with emir it's a combination of the family dynamic that kind of sibling rivalry narrative and also the setting that cold thing. So the original session where putting words down was retelling a Beowulf. And that uh, fell apart really quick. The vibe, something kind of cold and brutal and mythic is what carried through. And that's really what the setting is trying to do so it, it's this this bleakness of the world that that ties in with kind of the bleakness of of, of i guess yorick's family history right is what you're saying and, and and between the two you feel there okay I've, I've got a novel now when you sit down do you are you I, i've heard it described as there's two types of writer there, there's an architect or a gardener the architect sort of plans everything out and and the gardener or plants seeds and, and sees where it goes how do you approach this? Would you have a, a really strict outline uh, as you're starting or, or does, does the story sort of tell itself to you? I usually just start from the first word and try to go. And because I'm a short story writer, um, usually that doesn't have far reaching consequences because if you write a bad short story, you wasted a few days or a week. Uh, when you're doing a whole novel, the stakes are much higher. So the first draft of Emir was quite different and very flawed. I wrote it in Prague during the initial lockdown there. Um, and it was much shorter than the book is now because all of that backstory, I hadn't really worked it out. And so I was just skimming over it and there was no real, uh, depth to the book at all and the rewrite was uh, very laborious um, i did that when i was actually in south africa staying with my sister's family and just kind of like going back into it pulling out all the guts rearranging things i had like 20 post-it notes on the floor in my room and my niece came in and was like drawing smiley faces and stuff on them. And um, yeah, the rewrite was brutal. And if I had planned it better, maybe it wouldn't have been, but the end result is one I'm happy with. 
Now, when you say brutal, why? Brutal because you had to remove so much or brutal because you, you had to face that there was so much missing from, from your first kick at the can? Or, or what was the, when you say brutal, beyond just a, a fair amount of work, what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? There was a lot missing and there were also just things that I didn't know and that I had kind of just like faked my way past in the first draft. And so trying to really figure out what happened with these characters, why they're doing what they do now, uh, and just really a massive kind of creative block um, that took me a long time to work through. I remember talking with my sister in the kitchen about it, and she asked me at one point, like, is this worth doing, or should he just tell your publisher, like, no, I, I can't do this book. Um, and then at some point the mental switch kind of flipped and I like, I really hated this book while I was working on it. It felt like a real, like a real parasite and it was kind of just draining all of my, my energy. It was making me quite unhappy. And uh, all of these other stories that I wished I could be working on were just kind of floating out there in the ether temptingly. And what I decided was to just put every idea I had into the novel instead. And so it went from being this parasite to being this beast that I really wanted to feed. And so whenever I had an idea for an image or a line or whatever that I thought, oh, that's cool. I'm just going to find a way to put it in there. So I ended up writing the second draft as if it was the last book I would get to write. And I just wanted to, you know, as every soccer coach puts it, leave it all out there on the field. Yeah. And, you know, you do, I'll just say as a reader, you do get the impression that, that there, that it is all out there on the field. There is so much going on. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how did you develop the, the, the whole, the whole culture of Emer? the, 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 you know, it, it's a, a, a kind of a brutal ice world, um, where the, the population is exploited, right? There, there's a kind of capitalist, uh, uh, extractive kind of colonial machine uh, over top of the world. And I'm wondering, how, how did you flesh out what daily life was like uh, for the workers? How, how did you play with the notion of the culture and, and, and their, their rituals and, and all of these things that, that inform the, the story and sort of make it feel very organic? Yeah, I'm a real remixer. And so everything I write comes from things that I've either read or watched or experienced. And with the setting of Emir, um, obviously it draws from my own life because my formative years were up in Grand Prairie in Northern Alberta. So kind of the, the winter, the, the sense details of what it's like to you know, be really fucking cold. They was they come from real life, and then the the sense of industry, like the cut, has kind of an oil town vibe that also comes from Grand Prairie, uh, mixed with Prague because I was writing the first draft there, and also Chengdu as well. And then for the culture of the miners, it draws a lot on this great book. Um, by Martin Cruz Smith called Rose. It's about coal miners, like a coal mining town in England. Um, and also Emile Zola, uh, German as well. 
And so all of these things get 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 mixed up, and that creates the backdrop uh, that creates a world for for York to to work within. You, are you developing all of that at the same time as you're developing his relationship with with with, with his mother and uh, uh, with Gausta? I mean, I feel like there's you know the same relationship playing out at two different phases in his life, which which I think many of us can relate to the idea that we do seem to face certain people in different shapes over and over again in our life, uh, uh, certain things. Um, you know, how, how much did, did one come before the other and how much did they, they sort of all come to you together? The real theme of the book, it's really about like that harsh homecoming. And it's also about the cyclical sort of self-destruction um, that people can get locked into. And so, yeah, you do see things repeating and you do see Gausta as an echo of his mother. Uh, and those things, they kind of informed each other as I was writing. Like I said, the first draft was abbreviated. It kind of just skipped over all the backstory. We didn't have any sense of history between him and Gausta. Uh, there weren't those flashbacks. Uh, there were fewer of the, the dream sequences where we really dig into the, the psyche of it. Uh, so I guess the vague shape of it was there and it was only on the rewrite that I started really pulling that stuff out and clarifying. Now, as we're talking, you've mentioned a whole host of cities, countries, locations, um, and even mentioned, you know, travel during the pandemic, <laughs> which, which is why I like that you were in multiple countries uh, during the lockdown. Tell me a little bit about how you live and, 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 how how the you know how you inhabit the world because it seems like you're you're moving from place to place an awful lot you're 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 you're, you're a global citizen yeah i think i caught the travel bug early because my family traveled quite a bit when i was young going between niger which is where i was born and canada and the united states and um since high school the longest i've ever spent in a city was Ottawa, that was three years. Uh, but I move around a lot, I think, partly out of a uh, uh, desire for salience, I guess, novel stimuli uh, as a way to slow down time, because that's one of my many preoccupations that comes through in the novel is not being able to reverse time, not being able to slow down time. And just realizing that things are rushing past. And one of the only ways I find to slow that is by finding new things, new places, new people. And, you know, at the heart of this book is Yorick not wanting to return home, but needing to return home. I'm wondering, is there a home for you that that that, that you're afraid to return to or that, that you had to return to or will have to return to that this book is sort of prepping you for? Well, I had a slight homecoming um, before moving here to Montreal. I was back in Alberta in Grand Prairie for about six months. I moved there to spend time with my grandmother because um, her health has been fluctuating. And so now whenever she phones me, she asks when I'm going to move home. Um, and in her mind, home for me is Grand Prairie. Um, for me, 
had never really felt at home in any one place. I know that's cliche to say, um, but Grand Prairie is where I have lesser uh, familial trauma, but yeah, the familial trauma that Yorick deals with on Emir. Yeah. Now, um, when I think of when I think of of the story you you've told, that there's sort of four, maybe five different layers to it. You've got the culture of the mining town. You've got the the you've got the homecoming, you've got the technology, you've got the kind of the, the world that they inhabit, the, 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 the notion of how space travel would or wouldn't work, who the, who the Grendels are, what they are. Um, I'm wondering, what is it about that kind of grand world building that appeals to you? I mean, in terms of wouldn't it be simpler if you're thinking about a story about a, a kid coming home to tell a story about a kid going back to Alberta? Uh, why, what is it about, or, or, or how does that world building, you know, how does it, what is it that makes it sort of why science fiction, I guess, is the question. I, I know, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous question in a way, because I know I, I'm, I'm drawn to reading science fiction, but why do you, what, what is it that draws you to, to expressing yourself that way? Hmm. Well, in general, I always feel that science fiction can do anything that um, mainstream or literary fiction can do but it also can do so much more because of the creative liberty involved in it. Um, for me, what I love about the genre is kind of the tightrope between uh, fantasy and believability. So you are coming up with stuff that is uh, really far out there, but there's always that possibility that yeah, this could be real. It should feel like it can be real. And then on the personal, more psychological side of it, uh, writing in fantastical settings kind of just allows you to distance yourself from your own uh, patterns and your own bad habits and damage and kind of look at it with clearer eyes, I guess. And do you, do you find... I mean, is there is there any part of you that feels that that all of the 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 world building and and, and the the kind of imagination that that comes into it is a distraction from from the heart of the story, or do you really feel that that allows you to to access the heart of the story in, in a unique way? It's a way of emphasizing it, actually. Mm. Yeah, because you can use the setting and use the background conflict and use even the technology, the aesthetic, the vibe to really uh, echo and amplify the story, which at its heart is a very basic story of homecoming, um, rivalry, damage, uh, attempted reconciliation. Mm. And I guess the other genre that's overlaid uh, on, on what you just described is is almost a, um, a thriller or an action movie. I mean, it also has that element of, of propulsive storytelling of, of a kind of there's chase sequences and things like that. How, how do you how do you approach that? Trying to the, the kind of um, um, the momentum, the physical momentum, and, and trying to balance that against the kind of uh, emotional momentum and then the intellectual momentum. Are these do you see these as, as different spinning plates that you've got to keep going, or or is it just basically one plate in your in your mind? 
I've always had a knack for writing action. Um, when I was a kid, that was all I would do is I would just write ridiculous over the top action scenes all the time. And then as I've uh, gotten older and kept writing, action has become a bit of a chore because it takes, it takes a while to write well because you're basically moving pieces around keeping track of physical objects, locations. Uh, and then at the same time, you have to give the visceral details uh, that will let readers really engage with it. So writing action scenes is kind of something that I can do on autopilot without thinking about it too much. Um, but when I'm writing a novel that is really character driven, which Ymir is, it's a character driven novel, um, I think about how many action set pieces do I need to keep readers engaged and how can I use the action set pieces to once again amplify the core character conflicts going on. If that answers the question. I yeah, I think, I think it does. And, and certainly there's no, I don't think there's any action sequence in the book that doesn't also illuminate something else. I mean, there is no filler in that sense of, well, there's a, you know, an extended 20 minute fight scene that, you know, in a film where you're just like, what, that didn't help me. I didn't understand anything more. I mean, you, you very clearly thought this through, but wondering if we can just dig in on that a little bit about the, I love the notion that the scenes that where where as, as a reader, I'm going to read faster, right? I'm going to be speeding up as a reader, you're slowing down mm -hmm. as a writer. And I want to, you know, uh, just maybe connect that to, to what you, you, you hinted at earlier about your your obsession with the notion of time of of wanting to to roll it back how how does the, you know just to tell me a little bit more about that about that desire for, for time and and how how that informs the writing and and your approach to pacing i guess yeah it's an interesting disparity um because like you said scenes that can take a long time to write action scenes are the ones that readers will fly through because they're engaged and every sentence is leading directly to you know a consequence a setup and it's very da, 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 da. Um, and i also did the tiny micro chapter thing in this book so it's like mm -hmm. eating a big bag of chips basically <laughs> um, on the more macro scale with time it's one of nature's cruel ironies really uh, because when I really get into a zone writing I'll lose time like crazy and it's this joyful thing but I can start writing at you know 5 30 a.m and then I'll look up and it's 2 p.m and I haven't moved and you know like I'm sore and I'm starving and it's like I just lost a whole chunk of time that I'll never get back, even if I enjoy doing it. Um, so maybe that's why I look so hard for salience and ways to slow down, because a lot of my time is spent writing, which is lost time. Mm. Well, okay, tell me, so, so that's your approach to writing. What's your approach to reading? What kind of a reader are you? I'm not much of a reader. Uh, obviously, heresy. when I was a kid. That's heresy as a writer. You're not allowed to say that, are you? I think. <laughs> okay, so, sorry, go on. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I read voraciously. 
Uh, I would read multiple books a day. And I think that is when so many things kind of cemented for me, clicked in my brain for how story works. And then on the smaller scale, how grammar works, how language works. That's where I kind of developed that universal. This is a sentence. This is not. This is a good sentence. This is not. Um, but I'm, I'm more into visual media. I like watching shows. I like movies, um, sometimes video games. I get inspired by visual art, by music, by my own life. Um, and I'll read, but I read very sporadically. And I'll read whatever someone shoves at me or whatever I find. If I'm traveling, I'll go to a used bookstore and I'll just grab something, whether it's, you know, nonfiction or poetry, just whatever catches my eye and kind of chip away at it. Um, but a lot of my influences are non-literary. But would you, would you, do you have to do research? I mean, in terms of if you're writing a story like this, do you have to look into, I don't know, nanotechnologies or mining technologies or, or, you know, do you, do you find yourself reading, like, do you, do you research things or, or are you able to write from, from what you've already picked up from osmosis, uh, what, what's already inside you? I research things in terms of like, you know, how long could this guy walk in a blizzard? Um, but for things like technology, the, the readership is already so indoctrinated. That sounds bad. Um, the readership is already so accustomed to all these things that I can throw out words like Ansible and mm. people are like, oh yeah, uh, you know, instantaneous communication. And I can use concepts like torpor and people are like, oh yeah, cryosleep. And people already have all of these kind of pre-existing images and bits of information to draw on. And uh, for me, I love science fiction for its aesthetics. And so it's very rare that I'll write hard science fiction I've done it a few times, just kind of like to prove that I can like, okay, I'm going to talk to this physicist friend and actually like write something that would work in real life. Um, but I would call Emir brittle science fiction. Mm. So it has that appearance from a distance, but there aren't a lot of uh, scientific underpinnings. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. You referred to to feeling that at the beginning, at least, that this was almost a, a parasite. This story, to, to what extent was that? Because Yorick is a less pleasant uh, uh, main character, maybe than than you had in the annex. I, I remember, you know, sort of, you had a, a your first novel, the annex, um, 
you've got a real a hero that every you you immediately root for as an you know you're right on on their side from the from the very start in in terms of how they're or at least that's how I'm remembering it now. To what extent was it more difficult because you're you're with a more difficult character or less of a less of a straight ahead hero? Mm. Yeah, yeah. For me, uh, Yorick is an easy character to inhabit. I guess it's not necessarily pleasant to be in there, but it's very um, it's very personal, you know. Um, like I'm someone with bad habits who tries to deal with them in not always the best ways. Uh, I've been seeing reviews starting to trickle in for this book and people have talked about how difficult it can be to empathize with Yorick. And I think one thing I was really trying to do with this book is show an anti-hero who is uh, just kind of sad and pathetic and repulsive and shows kind of the worst elements of myself. Because we all kind of wonder in the back of our mind, like, if I showed someone like me at my absolute lowest, weakest, most pathetic, could they still love me, respect me, value me as a human being? And so Yorick is an extremely uh, like messy character in that respect. And it took a lot of unpleasant self-reflection to write him. So yeah, that would be one reason why it was a draining experience. And fundamental to, to his character or the, the kind of what makes him difficult, I guess, is, is the disconnection between what he sees and between his, his how he sees his actions and, and how his actions are perceived, right? And so, uh, you know, how consciously were you playing with that throughout the whole writing of this book, that, that, that kind of the gap between your inner life and your outer life, between who you tell yourself you are and who you actually show to the world? Yeah, I think that's the essential human gap, is the gap between who we actually are, what we're actually putting into the world, what we do, and how we perceive ourselves. Uh. So would you say then, you know, it sounds like uh, you're, you're suggesting here that a lot of a lot of the grist for the mill in terms of York is from you and from your own life and, and you sort of uh, um, taking the things that you find difficult or that people tell you are difficult about yourself and, and, and kind of start using that as, as the, as the kind of DNA to, to build them up are all of, I mean, maybe this is a silly question for, for, for a writer, but are all of the characters aspects of you, or do you see these characters more of aspects of, of other people in your life or, you know, so if, if Yorick is prime, is to a large extent, you know, an extension of you or parts of yourself. Is that true of all the characters or, or, or just, just the main character? Yorick is definitely uh, closer to me than most protagonists I write. Um, and for the other characters in the book, you can see bits and pieces. I mean, like in all fiction, these are figments of your imagination that you're putting onto paper 
And so all of them necessarily have a bit of your DNA. Um, but usually when I'm writing characters, they're more based off people I know. Um, like, for example, the relationship between Linka and Nocti in their bar. Uh, mm. They're based off some friends of mine from Spain uh, who had this hilarious kind of relationship where she worked at this bar and he would just spend all day there. That was what he did. They would spend all day um, in this bar where I also spent a lot of time. Uh, so when I'm writing characters, I'm thinking about what they need to do, their function in the actual story, how they're going to move things around. Um, but I'm also drawing on real people, real personalities, and sometimes fictional ones. Well, and there, there's one of the ideas that I, is so, uh, so just terrifying and, and, and plausible also, is the notion of the disembodied that you have. You just mentioned uh, one of the characters who's been essentially removed from their body uh, by the corporate overloads and, and is kind of living in a vat, right? Is kind of a, a, a brain in a tank. And, and kind of exist in that way. You talk a little bit about, you know, why, what about that? You know, it, it, what are you exploring with that? And, and do you just, is it just fun? Cause it's a neat idea. Do, is it more as like a, a kind of a, an action trope that you're saying, Oh, this is a cool thing. Or, or is there something about the disembodied nature of that character um, about how it speaks to the differently abled or the, the, the different, I mean, there's the interesting use of they, them pronouns, right. In, in, in the story. I'm just wondering, you know, talk a little bit about the other and specifically about the disembodied and, and you know, what you were playing with, with, with that, with that whole theme. Yeah. You're seeing an example of how I said, when I started to just say, okay, I'm going to put all the ideas that I want to do something with that I would normally like write a short story about, I'm going to pack it all, you know, dense into this novel. And so the, the idea of debodying is one of them because um, I read this fascinating article about uh, head transplants, which are supposedly on the way, but they've supposedly been on the way for a long time. Um, and it was just talking about why it's so difficult. And also if it were to become uh, feasible, uh, the ramifications of it which were very interesting, uh, attaching a brain to a different nervous system. Uh, and also we used to think of the brain as like this little man controlling the body, but now we know uh, so much about the distributed nervous system and about feedback loops in the body, uh, like gut flora, I mentioned mm. that in the book. Um, and I really got stuck on this idea of uh, head transplants and debodying. Another reason why is because it applies to science fiction. Um, basically the idea of uploading a brain into a computer is super, super, super unrealistic. And it's this trope that I'm super guilty of using as mm. well. But I read an article just kind of like obliterating the idea of that. And they were like, head transplants are more likely than this. And so that sent me down that head transplant rabbit hole. And I'll be honest, right now I'm writing like two different stories that involve uh, a disembodied head. So mm. I haven't gotten off it yet. 
So you, you said you're writing two stories at the same time. So how, how does this work? Are you, when you're working on a novel, you, you said you, you basically just threw everything into the novel. So now that you're, you're working on stories, do you, do you jump around from story to story? Is it, is it a whole different discipline for you, a short story to, to a novel? Yeah, I'm actually writing eight stories at the same time. So what I do is I have kind of a, a spreadsheet and I try to keep track of uh, how many words I'm getting down on each story. Um, I'll usually have about eight that are well in progress. So uh, that can range from, you know, like three scenes done to like almost done. And then kind of underneath that, I'll often have five that are just like first few lines or maybe a first scene. That. Now, is this is this because you might be in the mood to do editing one day and first draft another day, or or is it because you have these different stories that are all competing for your attention and and you you don't want to ignore any of them? It's a combination of. Well, I don't really edit with short stories. Um, like I said, I just try to write you know first word to last word with short stories, but that means sometimes I just hit a wall and I have no idea and I need to put it on the back burner. I'm a big believer in the subconscious just solving stuff. And so when I hit a block on one story, it's like, oh, well, I have these seven others I can try. And, uh, you know, usually if I go through all of these stories in the morning, at least one of them will hook and I can get to work on that. And maybe that'll carry me all the way to the end of it. And that'll be the only thing I work on for like a week. And sometimes I'll hit another block and switch to a different one. But uh, I always try to show up to work. And is it the same kinds of things that hook you every time? Uh, you know, or is it sometimes a character trait or sometimes a technology or sometimes, you know, uh, what is it that grabs you when, when you're subconscious? Like, what is it that bubbles up where you say, ah, that's what I'm going to work on today? You just have to write a sentence where you look at it and you're like, nice. And you just want to keep going and jump off of it. Uh, like, it's really hard to write if you don't like what you're writing. Uh, so there's a long stretch with Emir where I just hated it, which made it a real slog. Uh, but when you're enjoying yourself, writing is uh, so, very easy. So why did you continue then if it was painful, if it was a slog? What was it about that that you thought, no, I have to see it through? Was it just a contract issue <laughs> or or was it the idea? Was there something you knew you were going to get from pushing through? It was kind of a, a redemption arc for me because Emir came from the ashes of uh, what was meant to be a trilogy that fell apart. So the first book I wrote, Annex, uh, it was like I conceived it as a standalone novel, but I got the deal on the condition of turning it into a trilogy. And I struggled mightily. Um, and I wasn't able to turn in a satisfactory book two of three. And then uh, my agent and publisher allowed me to renegotiate that. And they said, okay, we're going to make it a duology instead. And so then I tried to rewrite that book two of three into book two of two. And I was just unable to do it. And it was the first time I had really failed badly at something that 
is like, this is the only thing I'm really good at writing is, you know, this is my thing. And I just couldn't do it. Uh, and they gave me, you know, extension after extension. And then finally they were like, okay, uh, forget the sequel, just write something else, write whatever. And when you say it failed, describe that. Like what, what did it, did it was unsatisfying to you or was it satisfying to you and not to others? Or, you know, what does that mean that that it failed? That Yeah. The first draft I was like, okay, this is, you know, it's not amazing. And I handed it in and they were uh, not super impressed with it. And then after it was suggested that it become book two of two, um, because it was a it was a middle book. It was one of those books where you're just kind of like waiting around for the big finale. Uh, and so when I tried to rewrite it and have that big finale contract things, um, I would just kind of bang my head against this wall. You know, I would be looking at this draft every day. Um, like it wasn't a complete draft. I never completed this, this second draft. And is that, sorry, do you think, is that because it was never supposed to be more than one book? Is it, were you trying to force something that wasn't there or, or what was it that, that you couldn't get your, your hands around that, that, you know, how, how did it work so well for book one and not for book two or two and three, depending on how you look at that, the second Part of it was that I had conceived the first book as standalone. And so things are pretty much wrapped up. Yeah. And then it was kind of, okay, I have to unwrap all these things and I have to kind of generate a new conflict that ended up feeling artificial. Um, hmm. And so, okay, then let me jump in and say, what did you learn from that failure that, that helped? with Amir or was there anything (laughs) or was it just lost time? (laughs) I learned to not sign for multi-book deals. I'm just not going to do that anymore. It's not worth the stress. Yeah. It's weird to think Mm. about, like I signed this deal several years ago. Um, It was shortly after I moved to Ottawa. So like five years ago, maybe. And so I've always had for five years in the back of my mind, you should be working on the book right now. Wow. Um, That doesn't sound healthy. (laughs) But that doesn't sound like a good way to, to, to be creative, right? This, this thing over your shoulder looming. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, whenever I was writing short stories, I had that sense of guilt because I should be working on the novel and whenever I was working on the novel, I was thinking, oh, I would rather be working on these other things. Um, yeah, and I really can't tell you how or why that neural switch flipped when I was uh, in South Africa, but I'm really glad it did because I finished the draft on kind of just this like dopamine cascade. I was in an insane groove where I was waking up around like 5 a.m. or even earlier and I was working on it at the house, waiting for the coffee shop to open at seven. And at seven, I would go to one coffee shop, uh, try to work until like 11 and go to a second coffee shop, work until one. 
Um, and that was just what I was doing. And then I would like play with uh, my, my niece and nephews or go to the, go to the beach or up this little mountain nearby. And that was my entire life. Um, it was nice. Mm. Wow. Okay. I want to, I'm cognizant of, of taking a lot of your time here. Um, but I wanted to ask, I guess, about when you're with your, with your novels, the two novels that are out now and, 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 you know, whatever comes next and the stories, are you for each new story inventing a new universe or are you visiting the same universe? This is sort of one of these things with sci-fi, you know, do all your books, all your stories exist in, in one universe that you go to or, or is each one completely distinct in your mind? Uh, it's a new universe every time. It's very, very rare for me to revisit a setting. I've done it um, with a couple kind of like roguish fantasy characters because that's part of the fun is that it has that serial feel to it, I guess. Mm. Um, but in general, it's always new universe, new setting. And with short stories, like I said, readers are so familiar with these aesthetics that all you need is one or two like new interesting details. And then you can just hint like the broadest strokes possible. And people already have such vivid, vivid imagery and lush settings in mind that they can call on. So, yeah, I don't view world building in short stories as a really difficult thing because the reader is doing all the work. So now you you mentioned not the idea that you are no longer going to sign multi book deals. Um, how how are you approaching then the, the the way forward? Are you just going to write whatever you want to write? Or I know some people don't feel comfortable writing without a contract in hand, and other people won't write anything until like or don't want a contract until the book is completely finished. Where where are you at now? When you think of when you sit down at your keyboard in the morning, are you? I guess I'm just. This is maybe a question of of balancing the art and the commerce you know to what extent do you feel you need to be aware of the commercial side of what you do and to what extent are you able to just focus on the creation mm -hmm. yeah so signing the book deal was the big uh, monetary infusion that allowed me to start writing full-time but since that deal i've been lucky enough to get the occasional you know film option or television option and so there will be this big cloudburst of money. And I'm like, okay, I'm safe for, you know, a year, two years. Uh, and then I supplement that by continuing to write and sell short stories, which I've been doing, you know, throughout these five years. It's a constant thing. Um, and lately I've been getting more work for hire type stuff. So I've been doing some video game adjacent stuff. Um, like so novelizations you mean uh, like uh, uh, stories and novels about video games or writing for the games themselves uh it's all like nda'd up oh, okay. but <laughs> it, it's it's video game adjacent uh it's it involves like pitching for for short film stuff hmm. um so i've been doing that and always in the back of my mind i think okay um eventually i'm gonna need another hit of money but i don't live a particularly glamorous lifestyle despite the travel the travel is the main expense uh, so you know if need be i can go back to my job at superstore i'll be okay mm -hmm. 
And just on that note of travel, do you know where you're going next or, or does that, does that sneak up on you? I mean, you're in Montreal now. Do you, do you have an idea of how long you're going to stay there or, or like, do you just wake up one day and say, no, it's, I got to get out of here. Or, or do you plan ahead? <laughs> I signed a year long lease. So uh, for me, that's a big deal. Uh, I want to be here for at least a year, uh, partly because of my grandmother's situation. I want to stay in Canada, but I will be taking a brief trip to France for uh, uh, Utopielle, the, the conference there. Uh, they're translating EMIR right now, actually, so it's going to be out end of September, and then I'll be there for kind of the launch and signings and that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Well, Rich, congratulations. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Appreciate Always it. a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Rich. That was my conversation with Rich Larson. His second novel, Emir, is out now. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music